Hey everyone, this is Diana DePaul, NBA referee scout and former D1 women's official. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs podcast. Serve the game. You are listening to the Crown Refs podcast, the audio experience for basketball officials. officials. Serve the game. Serve the game. It's so nice and and it just gets me like kind of jazzed up when I go to these different gyms and I just get to watch, um, you know, so many referees that have such an enthusiasm and passion, um, you know, just to be out there doing what they're doing. And then um, doubly to have that desire to, you know, be the best they can be, whatever that means to them. You know, it just, um, it's really joyful to be sitting up there watching. That's great. I know there's a lot of passionate young officials and the industry's getting younger and hungrier, it seems, over these, you know, (laughs) last decade. So I'm sure you're right in the mix with that. They they are. They are. And, you know, I'm sure as we talk tonight, um, there's different things we'll hit on. And it is awesome. You know, um, I, I go into different levels as you know of watching all kinds of referees um even go to some like college programs and just try to build some enthusiasm you know for for officials even as young as that to continue with officiating coming out of college and to just be out there and again seeing their enthusiasm um you know, just, it just gets you going, you know? Um, but on the, on the same note with that, you were right. You know, you're, you're right when you say that there's a lot of young officials that are, that really, really want to be doing this. And part of that is, you know, helping them understand that there is a process to all of this. There's a process to getting started in high school. There's a process to getting started in college. You know, it's not, none of this is going to happen overnight. Um, It takes a lot of patience. And sometimes when they're really young and they, they get to taste a little success early on um, that, that can kind of be a hard lesson sometimes for them to, you know, really understand Um, and that it's not failure. It's just that they need more game experience. They need to see more because they haven't even begun to kind of, you know, see the tip of the iceberg in terms of everything that's out there to learn about officiating. Yeah. That's something that I think every passionate official goes through once they get that bug, whether it's a year (laughs) in or two to three years Mm -hmm. in, but once you really get that officiating bug, you want to move so quickly. You want to move overnight. You want to, you know, jump levels. Um, You think you have all the experience in the world. It's, it's, you know, you don't have that perspective yet of the experience, knowing that there's so many more reps you need to get. But I think right. it's a feel, feeling a lot of officials share in common. It is. It is. And, and, and the thing that we all have to do, you know, a good job at is is as their mentors, keeping them. You know, keep keeping their mind where it needs to be, keeping them still focused on what is right in front of them go out and do that game, go out and do that next season is if they didn't get picked up 
you know, where they thought they should have been that year or something like that to just, you know, handle what's in front of them. You can, you can only control so much in this business. Um, and, you know, maybe there's going to be a game out there that season that all of a sudden when you're driving home to yourself, you're going to say, wow, I really never saw plays like this. I never really saw speed like this. I, I just never saw, you know, the kind of um, post play I had tonight. I learned a lot. And then it begins to sink in, you know, um, I'm going to get there. But, but so, you know, maybe my mentors are right. You know, I do need to just learn a little bit more. But it's hard. It's hard because they compare themselves to friends. They compare themselves, you know, too quickly to people that might be one or two or three years ahead of them. And they think, you know, I, I should be there, too. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's all just a journey. But the whole thing is just keeping them focused on control what is in front of you, control what you can. Because you just can't control everything. What would you say um, is the best area in the country right now for up and coming officials? Um, I don't really think that there's one. You know, there's there's four scouts, for example, that you know we we watch games all over the country, uh, some internationally, um, and that it would really be hard for me to put my finger on that because. You know, our job is to just to find those little, you know, diamonds in the rough and, um, you know, and and we're finding them and we're finding them pretty much everywhere. And, you know, we're looking to unturned stones that historically have maybe never been thought to look at before. Um, So I I honestly think that it's a it's you you can be anywhere. And if you want a shot at um, collegiate or, you know, art, like the NBA officiating, you do the right things and you will be found. For most, the craft of officiating is a great part-time gig. It can be a wonderful second piece to an individual's career. And for some, it can indeed be a full-time vocation. Diana, you are in the small percentage of people that get to live this ref life full-time. You've had a long, (laughs) successful career as an official, and now you get to give back to the game off the court. Can you touch on how you got into the field and your relationship with officiating? Sure. Um, Thanks, Paul. I I have a uh, kind of a little funny story as to actually how I got started in this. I played um, I played basketball at University of Richmond, and um, I had friends even during that time that kept telling me, you know, you should consider officiating part time. You, you know, so I graduate, and I really didn't pick it up for a few years, but I did start playing on a co-ed basketball team. And um, at the time, my then boyfriend was our kind of player coach, and I was ruthless. I was. <laughs> this is this is a rec league, Montgomery County, Maryland, co-ed basketball uh, team, and I was so mean to the officials. Mm. I would get technical fouls. I was getting thrown out of game. Talk about it. Talk about it. Oh my gosh, it was so, I mean, not funny, but so fast forward to our championship game that year and I had one technical foul called against me. So of course I have to go to the bench 
And again, my then boyfriend, player coach, you know, he was livid because you, you had to have a female on the court at all times. Mm-hmm. And at six one, I was the female my team always wanted on the court. So, um, you know, Tony came down the bench and you know, he's kind of yelling at me. And then he finally just kind of says, you know what? If you think you can do better than these officials, this is a rec league. Why don't you go try it? So to this day, 28 years later, (laughs) you know, is that on the bench? I was like, you know what? I will. And sure enough, the moment I started in board 12, I fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with it. Um, And so I just, I just worked. I worked and I, um, you know, I did it. I did the, the, that same rec league. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I was getting thrown out of worked that, you know, worked JV high school, worked varsity high school. I joined a couple of other um, associations in Maryland because honestly, I just wanted to work games. And at some point going to um, some of the camps, I was going to the IABO camps. I learned that, you know, you could, if you really put the time and effort into it, um, you know, Maryland was a good spot for JUCO. Maryland was a good spot for Division Three. You know, those kind of things. Um, I knew that I wanted a shot at college, so I, yeah, I just kind of did. I I went to the JUCO college route. I worked a lot there for a few years. Then went to D three. You know, and then um, to me, I thought I had made it when Mister Birch picked me up. In the CIAA, that was a Division Two, um, and I love that league and love that man. Um, unfortunately, he he has passed away, and but he gave a lot of us our start. He gave a lot of people that were working Division One their start, and the CIAA was not an easy league to work. Um, so you really you really cut your teeth in seeing a lot of stuff in a game. So you, yeah, I went, I went, worked that for a few years, and then I did try out for some Division ones, and by the grace of God, you know, did get picked up in several Division ones. At the same time, we had started raising a family, so you know, I tell everybody, I, I absolutely had the best of both worlds because I got to be a mom and a wife, and then I just found something in life that I truly loved, and that was officiating. And, you know, because of the tremendous support I got at home, I was able to somehow make a, you know, make a good run in officiating work. Um, I did go out and got certified in FIBA. So I was able to work some tournaments in FIBA. I represented the United States um, at the World University Games in Bangkok, Thailand. That was that was truly a um, meaningful event for me. You know, it meant so much to me to get to represent the United States like that. And I learned a lot, learned a lot about communication, because when you're in a situation like that, you know, you, you really you're just dropped into a situation where you're with people that, you know, you can't communicate in their language. They can't communicate in yours. So you actually really learn a lot on the court about how important, um, you know, body language is, 
how important eye contact is, what you're doing with your eyes, where you're looking, how to read where your partner's looking. You know, I actually learned a lot in officiating through that experience, loved every minute of it. And then I, you know, did work in the, then it was called the D league and Joe Borgia was in charge of it. And, um, you know, worked that for a little bit and, but I had a, I had a long run at division one and loved every minute of it. Love can, can't even say enough about the people that I met, the experiences I had and all of that somehow just, you know, enabled me to have the courage to, um, you know, apply for this position. And again, by the grace of God, you know, I, I, was beyond fortunate to be in the position I am now. And um, it's a dream come true, really, for me. So, you know, um, it's, it's been a good run. It's been a, it's been a great run. I'd say so. You spent 27 years as a women's <laughs> college basketball official. Most of those years were on the Division One level. As you said, you're working for the NBA. So once you retired from college, tell me about how the opportunity to work in the NBA came and um, how's your tenure been with the world's greatest basketball league? <laughs> um, I, I'm, the, I'm the newest member of the scouting group. Uh, it's not been a, lo you know, a, a long tenure yet. I'm hoping that continues. <laughs> um, but I, I was, I was um, basically I had to go online and just keep checking um, on the NBA website about, you know, potential um, openings. And I sent my resume in and I heard from human resources. And then there was a series of about six or seven phone interviews and went through each phone interview and, and then, you know, got a call from, um, you know, the NBA that, that I was the candidate. So needless to say, that was um, quite a, just a really happy day <laughs> for me. Um, and I just took off running with it. And my tenure has been, you know, unbelievable, uh, you know, to sit in rooms and, and get to hear people like Monty McCutcheon and Mark Wunderlich and Bennett Salvador and Joey Crawford, um, you know, to hear them talk about officiating and I've listened to Joey's um, podcast, you know, on crown refs. I've listened well, to you. Scott's too. listen to Al's too. Um, anyway, um, you know, I, I have my notebooks in front of me right now of all the notes that I take from them still. And, you know, I, I joke with Sue Blau a little bit because after I listen to Monty talk a lot of times and people like that, I'm taking all these notes and it's almost like I want to get up and go, yeah, coach, put me in. I'm ready for the game. You know, and then I have to remind myself, oh, wait, I'm not the official anymore. Um, but it's just unbelievable how the knowledge base and, you know, the, the level of basketball IQ and, you know, how they see the game. And you, you just you, you just want to soak it in. Um, it's just tremendous. And, you know, so what they provide is unbelievable. And, you know, I, I, I love being around that kind of motivation. Um, you know, and they, they're just, they're just so, they want to get the best out of everybody. 
and and they work hard to do that. They work incredibly hard to do that. So it motivates you to do your job in the best way possible. And that for me, that's, you know, for me to just be the best scout I can be, to try to find, you know, the, the best candidates I can. And then for me to try to get them, you know, as ready as possible and as enthusiastic as possible about the opportunity that they might get presented with. Because, you know, um, to me, to be offered that kind of opportunity and to, you know, if you're the kind of person that'll run through that door, just, just run through it and do everything you can to make it happen, it's going to change your life. So, you know, maybe the mom in me too, a little bit just sits back and says, this is pretty cool. Like this is, this means so much to me about this job that potentially I could, you know, impact somebody and change their life for the better. And I really believe that about number one, being an official and then number two, potentially making it at the most elite and best level in the world. And that is to be an NBA official. Sounds like even though you've retired from officiating, you're getting a lot of fulfillment out of this opportunity right now. Oh, I am because it's, 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 um, it's tremendously fulfilling on so many levels. And, you know, in the, in the latter part of my officiating career, I wasn't out there doing the, you know, the Duke Carolina games. Um, but for me, and I can only speak for me, I took so much pride when I would have one of my supervisors, you know, call me to say, hey, uh, I'm going to kind of fill your November and December schedule up. You know, I'm going to put you with, you know, one and many times two brand new officials. You know, they've never worked a Division One game before. But, um, you know, we know you'll do the right thing with them out there. You know, they 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 just need to kind of they need to break into it. They need to, you know, just just make that first whistle. Um, and I took a lot of pride in the fact that and fulfillment in the fact that um, people saw in me a real desire to give back and and really try to make the best crew that night, that it meant something to me to be able to say, wow, I just saw this official kind of grow up in front of my eyes. And sometimes that was from one half to the other. So what I do now, I almost see it in the same way. When I maybe, when I maybe see something in, in an official that I'm looking at it, you know, at, at a camp or a tournament, to me, it's, it's somewhat of the same fulfillment in that um, when I see them in the summer, and then maybe go back and see them that winter. Maybe see them again the next summer even. And then it, it, it's unbelievable. I just sit up in the stands and it's almost like that proud mama moment where, you know, um, e even if they don't make our process, I just want to, you know, leave them with that feeling that, look, you can do this. You know, every level needs good officials. And I just, there, there is a little bit of pride in me that, you know, I'm watching them 
just starting to believe in what they're doing out there. And that inner confidence is growing, not arrogance, but this inner confidence is growing and they're really starting to open up to, you know, what they're hearing and what they're being told and, and, and trying new things and not being afraid of failing out there. There's a beauty and a fulfillment I feel when I can just sit up there every once in a while and almost go like that. Yes. You know, and whatever, and it could be just a small, you know, let's say communication was something that they needed to work on. Just when they, when they did try to go over and talk to a coach, um, you know, in a different way, or maybe they really had never talked to a coach before. And that was something they were going to work on that year. You know, it just, um, there, there's, there's a lot of fulfillment in it for, you know, still for me. And yeah, a lot of it is from that officiating family type of feel. Yeah, you work with so many amazing former officials that are now in leadership roles. What's been your experience working so closely with Monty McCutcheon? And what are some of the things you've learned in your main takeaways? It's so inspirational. He is, you know, he really is an inspirational leader. Um, I, I, I should back up and say team leader. Um, Monty, I think, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn it more. I mean, he really has a unique ability to make others around him really want to do and be the best that they can. He has a way of speaking that is incredible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, he, he is so knowledgeable and he delivers those words in a way that, you know, anyone sitting in the room, whether you're a new official or a very experienced official, can walk away with maybe a new understanding or a new way of thinking about something. And you are motivated to want to just just go out and try to try to implement those things. His communication style, um, I, I would never knew him as an official. And I, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I've, I've only been doing this two years, so I'm still very new to all of this, too. Um, but I can see why he was known as such a great communicator on the court. And I think there's a really beautiful balance to being super approachable. But then, like you said, having that firmness. That's one of the things that, you know, I task myself to look for um, in our candidates. I, you know, we, we have it, we, we term it the NBA brand of officiating. Um, firmness is, is one of those things you, you have to be able to understand and show on the court. Uh, it doesn't mean being arrogant. Absolutely not. But it does mean when you walk on that court, you are willing to own the game that night. You're willing to put yourself out there to say it is your job to serve the game, number one. It is your job to keep the integrity of that game the utmost priority. And, and yes, all of that 
has to be done with with um, complete respect and any communication we have. But throughout the game, you have to show fairness. You have to show a firmness on the court because through that firmness and how we're going to be consistent that night, all of that, the fairness comes out. Everybody's going to walk away feeling like they were they had a fair game. You have to have that courage to be firm. I love that you said courage uh, and you talked about the NBA's uh, brand of officiating. What do you think, in your opinion, are some other character traits of not only an NBA official, but just a great official? Willingness to work hard. This goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Sometimes, um, you know, you can have the, all the, uh, like some of the attributes, you can have this great look, you can have, you know, the, the, the best speed in the world, but you have to be willing to work hard. You have to be willing to day in and day out say, I have, you know, such and such amount of time. I'm going to go back and by myself, look at, look at these game tapes. Look at this, look at that. I'm going to go back and get in the rule book more. You know, I, I quote Al Batista all the time. He literally looks in a rule book every single day, as I know, you know, Paul. Four of them, four different rule books. Yeah. Yeah. He looks in the rule books every single day. How many aspiring officials do that? Crickets. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, you have to have that, uh, like just that drive. You have to have that drive. You have to have that willingness. You have to have, um, you know, a, a humility about you, but at the same time, a confidence on the court. The humility comes in when you are being given, let's say, some constructive criticism by a veteran. How do you handle that? You know, um, listen to it. Take it to heart. Go back and study what you're, what they're teaching you. On the court, it can be shown by how you communicate with the coach from time to time. By how you're sometimes communicating with your partners. The, your effort, again, your effort day in and day out. It's not, it doesn't just start when you walk on the court for the NBA. I mean, that effort has to be there all the time. Um, game preparation. What do you do on game day? What do you do off season? What do you do heading into the season? Um, it shows you know, it shows, I can tell when I'm up in the stands just watching how the officials walk on the court, you know, how they prepared for that game. For us, I'll use the word elite. You have to get into elite good habits for all of these things. Game awareness and control. The game awareness, what are your eyes doing in terms of trying to, check on the clocks. I mean, that game awareness is a thousand different things. You know, I'm just throwing a couple out like that. Mm -hmm. But 
are you recognizing changes in the intensity during the game? If that intensity changes, are you responding accordingly to it? And again, that can go into a thousand different directions. So I'll just kind of keep that general right there. But, you know, all of it, um, clocks especially, are you quick to know time differentials? Again, Al Batista has some wonderful training habits with that. If you go back to and listen to his podcast on Crown Refs, you can learn Thank them you. too. Thank you for, <laughs> for the um, podcast promotion. You are quite welcome. Um, but we talked about the firmness. Really, it's, it's, it's an understanding that our job really is to serve the game first and foremost. And that's not just play calling. It is making sure you are mentally and physically prepared for every single game. Um, you know, and then during the game, that again means many, many different things, but it's always without question, you know, game first crew and then yourself, you know, there's, there's nothing in the NBA brand of officiating that brings in arrogance Confidence, yes. Arrogance, no. It's a very fine line between the two. There are it, it is, it is. But arrogance, I think, and, and again, I'm I'm speaking, you know, for my like for things that I look at right now. I mean, even when I officiate it, I think arrogance really does kind of portray itself. Arrogance to me is um you know, on, on the court, when you're working with a partner who, let's say you're out there with a less experienced official, never looks to involve them in um, any kind of crew dynamics, is very quick to call out, you know, your mistakes and why, you know, some plays weren't handled properly. Oh, but by the way, they were blocked out. You know, so they they are not part of it type of thing. Um, you know, arrogance is very quick, I think, to, um, you know, just present itself in a thousand different ways in discussions after the games about, hey, did you hear who got, you know, these assignments? Um, and, you know, it's never about, you know, they, but they really deserved it this year. You know, they, they've had a good year. They worked hard. It's always you know, some other agenda as to why somebody else got a game, you know, um, that they were the better one kind of attitude. There's just no place for it. It doesn't, it doesn't make anything about the officiating world better. Um, you know, for me, I tried, I had a lot of learning to do. Um, you know, I was never the best at this or anything like that by far. But I tried to go into each game understanding that we were only going to be as good as the weakest link that night, so to speak. So I felt like in any position I was in, whether I had U2, U1, or R next to my name, 
it was my job to, to treat the game that night and do what I could to, to help us be the best crew we could be that night. And to me, that's confidence. That's not arrogance. What are some of the things about officiating that you're passionate about since you have the platform of being a teacher and a coach of the craft? What kind of change and impact are you trying to bring about? I, my goal is to help get the conversation past. Wow. I was watching a game last night and I, there was a really good female official on it in, in some small way or some way. I would love to help that conversation continue to become, hey, wow, did you see such and such game last night? Y'all had three great officials working it. And then let me be the one to maybe go back and check our schedule if I was on the road traveling and couldn't see the game or, you know, just didn't know who was on it. Let me be the one to go back and go, wow, we had two females and a male in that game. In other words, I want to be part of the bigger conversation that it's about officials. It's not about, you know, she's a great female official or he's a great male official for that part. We live in a very diversified world now. And that's, we want to be as diversified as possible. So in a nutshell, it really is about bringing to our grassroots tryouts the best officials I can find. Just going to take a quick 30-second timeout from the podcast to bring you a word from our sponsor, Mr. Mike Ori from Neat Tucks. Thanks, Mike. The Crown Rest Podcast is brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. We as basketball officials have enough to think about during the game. If you're looking for that clean, professional-looking uniform shirt, that NBA, WNBA, Olympic, D1 look, go to NeatTux.com and order yours today. Neat Tux and Crown Refs, serving the game. Continue to work hard. Continue to, to um, you know, again, I go back to that control what you can control. And that is, are you working as hard as possible? Are you staying as organized as possible going into every season? Are you, are you as prepared as possible for your games? Don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid to go out um, and try things you've been told by some of the mentors that you may trust. Go out and try what you're being told. Get, put yourself in uncomfortable situations because the only way to become more comfortable is to get into some uncomfortable situations sometimes on the court. Don't always ask for the easy games. At, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're working some levels where you know the supervisors very well and you're comfortable, 
ask for the really hard games so that you're putting yourself in a position where, you know, you have to deal with potentially anything happening in games. So as you start to move up, you're going to be less surprised at things happening on the court. You're going to be more ready for opportunity, in other words. And if you're given an opportunity, take it. Take it and run with it. If it's, if it's the path you want. And that's one of my other big things in, the, in this officiating business. You have to define your path for yourself. You can't let other people tell you what your path necessarily should be. Find one, two, three people you really trust. Early on, I get it. They're there to really help guide you and start that path. And that's absolutely something we all need. But at some point, you have to find the belief and the courage in yourself to say, I'm going to go for this, or this is what I want. And you make your path happen. Don't let obstacles get in your way because you're the one at the end of the day that has to put your head on the pillow that night. And you have to be okay with your decisions and officiating. And the, the worst thing I would want for anybody is eventually have that, you know, I probably should have tried this. I probably should have gone for this. So early on, you know, just know that there's a thousand different ways the officiating world can go. But anymore, it is very diversified. So, and there's, there's new avenues opening up every day. Um, and don't be afraid of any of them. Go for it. But it has to be your path. And you, you really have to buy into that. So there's some of the things that I would, I would um, you know, just, just talk to them about. You know, we're always talking about ways to improve on the court. That's why I'm glad in this clip, Diana touches on some of the off-the-court skills that we must execute as officials, such as organization, time management, travel, scheduling, availability, and most importantly, doing whatever you can to make the assigner's job easier. If you're going to be in several D1 conferences, no matter, again, whether they be mid-level, whether they be, you know, the, the, the big ones or whatnot, you have to really time management, organization, um, you know, communication, all of those become key. You have to learn to, you know, get so organized because you might be on six different websites that you're responsible for putting closed dates on, for example, or this or that. And it happened to me, inevitably, the one website that, you know, maybe I was a day late getting a few closed dates in on that I just got the day before, the morning before. It's the one night that other supervisor would call and say, hey, I see you're open on such and such a date. And the conversation you don't want is, well, I um, I just got more dates this morning and I, I well, you know, it's just... Yeah. You, you, you learn so much 
almost business-wise about how well organized you have to be. And one little, you know, I was taught this, you know, by, by some of my mentors and all that, but early on, you know, I learned these days, it could be Google docs. It could be any number of apps out there, but, you know, um, do an Excel spreadsheet. I still see some officials that might have 16 different pieces of paper because they've got one schedule coming in like this, another schedule coming in like this. Um, you know, you need to you need to do something to compile all of those schedules, all of that information together. You know, and keep it. You know, I, I'm sure many people say this, but you know, keep a copy of that in your car. Keep it, and I'm talking about the old fashioned printed copies, because again, you especially at the D1 level. If a supervisor is calling you, they might be calling you from an airport where they don't have access to anything online and they may have just had a cancellation and your name appears on a list as being open that day for, a, you know, a 7 p.m. game. So if you're somewhere that doesn't you don't have the electronic access, have a piece of paper where if they call you, you can say, yep, I'm still open and I can get out the door right now and get to that site. That will help you build credibility with those supervisors because then they know you're trustworthy. You know, that, that what you're showing and you're, you're also very diligent in keeping all of that kind of information up to date. I mean, they might have, you know, over a hundred assignments that night that they have to worry about. So, you know, do whatever you can to make their job easier in terms of how, how you're keeping yourself um, organized and all of that, you know, and then just from like a travel aspect, just learned a lot about staying patient, being adaptable um, and how important backup plans were. So at the D one level, sometimes you don't have the luxury of, um, you know, always calling the day before just anticipating a weather storm. It, it's almost like, you know, you have to do what you can do to get to a game. Um, they might not have people in that area necessarily easily accessible to cover that site. Now, they never want you to do anything, you know, that might harm yourself. But, you know, if you have a day off before a game and they're calling for a blizzard somewhere, you know, we, we do, you, you get paid money. Consider going then, you know, early. So when that supervisor might call panic that, you know, can you get to the site? What a relief to them that maybe you can say, um, I'm, I'm already here. Mm. You know, that happens several times, but sometimes we can kind of get so foolish and I'm not going to spend, you know, whatever, a hundred dollars on a hotel room. Um, you end up missing the game. And because you maybe didn't do something a little extra to get to the game site, yet your partners did, you know, now that supervisor, it just helped me. These are little things that, again, I was taught, I did. And um, I think, you know, for the most part, it really helped me at least continue in my D1 career. None of that was really on the court stuff. You know, it was just, it was just if I was going to take a game assignment, I was going to take it serious. 
and, and really business-like manage it the best I could. The funniest story though, I, I mean, this is one little story. Um, <laughs> it's not a D1 story, but it's actually a FIBA story. I'm 6'1", and I will tell you publicly, I wear a size 12. You know, I'm a, I'm a size 12. Me too. Okay. So here I am in FIBA in Bangkok, Thailand. Again, let me stress, I'm a 6'1 female. There's not a lot of 6'1 females in Bangkok, <laughs> Thailand. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to make it through the pool round and um, was selected to stay into the medal round. So we had, I think, two days off between those two rounds. And um, for some reason, if I remember right, we had to watch the number of bags, we, you know, the, the amount of luggage we were bringing with us or something like that. They had sent us like a FIBA bag and they asked you to try to keep whatever you brought to that bag. It's a pretty nice size bag. Um, but for some reason, I either forgot or I didn't bring sneakers thinking, well, I have my referee shoes, but I'm doing games every day too. And I'll just wear them to do my quick workouts. So I did a workout one of those two days. And then, um, I find out that morning that I'm working that later that day, get everything together, get in the van. My game site is about two and a half hours away from the hotel. And Bangkok, Thailand traffic, it's not an easy, oh, let's just make a U-turn and we can still make the game, you know, with, with time to spare type of situation. Um, so we've been in the van about two hours and we, you know, we still have a good drive. And I will never forget all of a sudden going, holy crap. For some reason, I just went like, my sneakers are still sitting on my hotel bed. Mm -hmm. yep. So I have never done this in my life. <laughs> I'm in Bangkok, Thailand. So we get to the game site. <laughs> and I've been to the game site before. And the, um, the, the people working the table... Um, they just, they, they really, we had, we had a good time. We had a good relationship from earlier games and they thought, I mean, they got a kick out of me sometimes trying to communicate some things from the court and whatnot. Um, so anyway, one of the men there wore like a size nine <laughs> and he happened to have somewhat of a black shoe. So for the first half, I had to wear, I'm a size 12. I like somehow got my feet into like you made it size work. Nine you made it work. And made it work. Meanwhile, um, Ron Tiberski was the men's representative for the United States. And he was over there. And that day was his day off. And I will owe him forever because he actually, I called him and he was able to get the hotel to let him in my room. He got my sneakers. And he made a round trip of probably six hours just to bring me my sneakers. So at least second half, I had them. But let me tell you something. To make to have that as the time to forget part of your referee uniform, something I will never forget. <laughs> Thanks, Turbo. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. <laughs> That's funny.
Oh, man, yep. that's like every official's worst nightmare. There's times where I'm on my way to a game, and I'll pull over just to double-check that I have my bag in the trunk. Yeah, I did it many times. I even carried two bags at sometimes, you know, some years or whatever. That's why it's just me. When I go big, I go big, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, hey, this is what officiating's about. I mean, at the same time, lifelong friend now in Ron. You know, and that's really what, you know, mainly the division one is. I mean, I still, I have friends that'll, that'll be lifelong friends from it. You know, that's, that's, that's a um, huge part of it. And in the presentations I do, I do talk about the referee family. I welcome all of them that are thinking about doing it into the rep, into like, quote unquote, my referee family, because that's the way I see it. They're entering the best family in the world. You know, um, and, and they'll, they'll, everybody in this has lifelong friends from it. Thanks for listening. Please go share this with a fellow official. Make sure you subscribe. And it would also mean the world to me if you left a review on Apple Podcast. Have a great day.